Universal Traveler Universal Spaceman Universal Traveler Universal Spaceman Welcome to Bands Are Like Girlfriends. My name is Chris Spät and this is my little podcast in which I talk about uh, music, the 90s and playing in bands. So why the title? Well, I've played in bands since I was 15 years old in 1994. And, um, you know, maybe a total of 10 bands. Some of them were short-lived. Some of them went on for years. Some of them didn't mean much. Others were quite intense, creative and uh, emotional affairs. All of them eventually ended, oftentimes with some heartbreak involved. So pretty much like a relationship, hence the title. So today on the show is... Eric Bauer, also known as Eric the Red, uh, an American expat from Kansas City, Missouri, who uh, moved to Germany in the mid-90s and started a record label called Middle Class Big Records. Um, and he released our first record with a band I played in called Minds of Confusion in uh, 1997. So here's my conversation with Eric the Red. Do you remember when we first met? I mean, I think it, it was in uh, 97? Uh, yeah, it was, I think. It was at the, uh, at the summer festival in Rottenborg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys played, and I was like, okay, there's one good band today. Yeah, <laughs> Minds of Confusion. I, it was, it was a... I was like 17 or 18. We were pretty young. And we, we played on this open-air stage in, in Rottenburg, on this town fest where there's lots of people always, you know, watching these bands. And, um, and then I think our guitarist back then, Steger, uh, he said, yeah, this is yeah. Amer American guy is going to be there. I don't know. I, I think he was in touch with you. And he said, you know, he's got a label and, you know, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll put us out or something like that. And, and, and that's where we met. And it was, it was pretty cool for me because, um, you know, I had up, to, up to that point, you know, the concept, I don't remember if I was like familiar with the concept, you know, that indie label that someone just could do their own label and, and put out bands. So that was my first mm -hmm. contact with that, I think. Also because you, you released uh, the records on vinyl mostly. I thought yeah, it was yeah, really sure. cool because back then, mm. I don't think I had any records on vinyl. I mean... I, my brother, who's two, two years older, he had uh, Guns N' Roses, you know, the Use Your Illusion one on vinyl. <laughs> he, oh, wow, cool. I think he had yeah. bought it on 1992 or something when it came out. And after that, it, it all changed to CDs. And then, and then you came along in 97 and you put the records out on vinyl. And, and I think from then on, you know, the whole vinyl thing became bigger and bigger. Until today, it's still growing, right? Well, you know, well, well what happened was, was like with me when I was growing up, like in the late eighties, mm. I think it was around 88, you know, someone told me like, you know, at a record store, somebody said like, you got to buy CDs now. It's the new thing. <laughs> They sound better. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. You know, I'll buy CDs. I won't buy records anymore. Who wants to buy vinyl? You know? And then, um, it was probably like around 91 in Lawrence, Kansas. And I was at a record store, 
one of my favorite record stores uh, uh, called The Love Garden. And this friend of mine was like flipping through all the records and I was buying a CD and he was like, what kind of person are you? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, how could you buy a CD? Of course, because it was, like, it was a record store, right? <laughs> yeah, but it was just like you know, but it was great because like it was kind of like to me like the like like the kick in the ass that I needed to get back into that. Yeah, and you know how how people got fooled back then because you know I think from the beginning, manufacturing CDs was must have been way cheaper than pressing records, right? And it was always more expensive, right? The CDs were always more expensive, and then I also remember when we recorded with that band. You know, Mind's Confusion, you later released our uh, EP. We had re- uh, recorded a demo in 97, in early 97, uh, you know, at this guy who had a music store, like two guys in a village. And they, I don't know, they, they thought, you know, these young kids will rip them off. So we recorded a demo <laughs> and then they said, you know, I have this thing. It's a CD burner. I can burn your demo on a CD, you know, but it costs like... 50 mark you know <laughs> which is like 25 euros a day so uh we all wanted one of course because mm-hmm. cds was like wow you know we need a cd we can't just have the the demo tape so each of us four i think we were four in the band each of us bought a cd for 50 marks <laughs> what incredible you know they, they made you buy the cd from them yeah 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 on top of the You know, the, the price that was agreed upon to um, record the demo. And he said, you know, you get one master. And then if you want, if you each want a copy on a CD, you have to pay 50 marks. That's horrible, man. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of like the people that, re- that actually recorded you. I mean, for, for I, I think the recording was like, like 500 marks or something. Uh, you mean for the EP then later, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember the funny thing was the door of the studio, there was like, a, you could tell that someone had punched, like almost punched <laughs> a hole in the, like in the door. And, and one of you guys were like, who did that? And he was like, meine Freundin. <laughs> Börse Freundin. <laughs> yeah, you, you get to meet a lot of weird guys in the you know, sound engineer field. Oh, it's great. You know, the thing is, um, the weird thing is, though, I will say this. Of all the like the you know uh, the releases I did, uh, the CDs never really sold very well. Hmm. You know, it was it was so hard to get rid of them. So easy, so cheap to press, yet so hard to sell. Huh? Yeah, uh, I remember you had these split ten inches like colored vinyl. That was also a thing that amazed me back then. Split ten inch colored vinyl. You know, a German and an American band. which I thought was pretty cool. You know, this you know this this concept too quite you know distinct bands usually and then you brought that together and and released those those two uh, a few you did of them right two masons and hefners and the masons yeah masons with essay house, house yeah. which was, which is completely ripped to shreds by everyone I, uh, i still have it i still have it and i still you know i, I don't really have, i can't say i listen a lot to essay house but uh, the mason side i like pretty much yeah. Well, Essex House, you know, that you know, they knew that they weren't really like a groovy kind of band, yeah. you know, and they were going for the kraut rock thing. Well, the reason I did that initially was, is the lawyer who got me my business permit here. Mm-hmm. We had to go kind of through like a like a legal back door to like allow me to open up a record label here. Okay, and it was really bizarre because I didn't have to show any kind of financial information. 
uh, he went to the, the city and he was like, this is the guy from the U.S. And he would like to do this. And he thinks that uh, the kids in the town are bored. They need something to do. And they're like, oh, OK. And so he said that I, I, I could get cultural subsidizing for that Ooh. if I did like a German U.S. American split or whatever. It's like, yeah, I work with German bands and U.S. bands. And they'll be like, oh, it's international. And then I, you know, he's like, you know, when when this whole thing's done, you call me up and we'll talk about the details. I'll help you, you know, and I'll help you with it. Um, and I called him up after he got me my permit, which I was happy about. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I called him up and was like, hey, Uli, can you help me with, uh, you know, getting this like funding from the state? He's like, oh, the money's dried up. Oh, wow. That sucks. So I don't know. I mean, if he was pulling my leg hmm. or. But he was, you know, in, in in that sense, he was a good lawyer, you know, because he got me, uh, you know, he you know he got me the business permit, which would be nowadays a lot more difficult, actually. But let's go back a bit, maybe, because I'm interested. You know, you grew up in Kansas, right? Uh, Kansas City, Missouri, is my hometown. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, Kansas, is uh, where I went to university or college. It's about forty, like a forty-minute drive mm-hmm. from Kansas City. Uh huh. And Lawrence is like a a cooler town. Is it like a college place? Or? Back then, I thought it was cooler, uh-huh. uh, and it was. Uh, but now they're both really cool. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like I mean, I'm not sure if I could move back there. If I did, then it'd have to be Lawrence because it's like you can ride a bike. You know, uh-huh. you know, you don't have to have a car. I always thought Kansas City when I was growing up was a mix of like the inner city, and then also like a trailer park. Okay. <laughs> I had my good friends back then, and there was uh, there were concerts every now and then. But I thought it was really hard. Uh, it, w- it was it was challenging to grow up there, you know, especially if you were okay. into things like punk. When did you get into music in general? Do you remember like your first first song or first record you're really conscious of that you remember that you were like, "Wow, this is great." Um, when I was well, when I was a toddler, when I was like, you know. You know, under two, you know, like, really? you know, like, like <laughs> you got your first. Well, my <laughs> dad would always play the Beatles and stuff. Of course, the records I bought or he bought me at that age were seven inches, like from Sesame Street and, you know, okay. and things like that. But he was like, we into got, like, music as well, your dad? Yeah, he was into like Beatles, Stones, Bob Dylan. Yeah, but I guess that uh, stays with you when you, when you, when you listen to a lot of that stuff when you're a kid, you know, without knowing what it is actually, you still. It still burns itself into your mind, right? Well, yeah, and it was just like you know, it's just like you know. And they, oh, uh, what else was that when I was a kid? Uh, Fleetwood Mac. And it's like the first record that you bought yourself. Do you remember the, the first rock and roll record uh-huh. that I bought myself with with the money from the Tooth Fairy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was twenty five cents. I bought Barracuda from Hard. And you were like six years old or something. I was yeah, I was like six years old, uh-huh. uh, and I had like a Winnie the Pooh record player for kids, uh-huh. and uh, and then my sec the second record I bought I believe was uh, Christine sixteen from Kiss. So that was some sometime in the mid seventies, I guess. That was like nineteen seventy seven. Okay, and then punk happened. Um, I remember hearing things on the radio like back then in nineteen seventy seven. I remember. Uh, like Elvis Costello, and, and, and there was like New Wave was in the radio. I mean, there were parts of town in Kansas City. If you wanted to find punk, you could find yeah. it. 
but I will say this, that it was like in comparison to, to, to Britain, the United States, especially like living in the Midwest where I was from, was really hard to find anything that was very progressive. Uh -huh. But you knew you were into that stuff? Like you were interested in, into, in punk or, or did that happen later? It happened way later. The first time I remember hearing a punk band was in 1978, I believe. Wow. Uh, uh, the Ramones. The only reason I was able to hear about them uh, was because they were on a soundtrack from a movie that I had on that I had on vinyl. It's called Over, Over the Edge. It's about like a bunch of angry teenagers. At the end of the movie, they set their school on fire. Uh -huh. And like the, the song Teenage Lobotomy is on that record. Okay. And did you think that was pretty cool? <laughs> it was weird. I liked it. And I was, I remember I was like about seven or eight. Oh. I liked it, but. I was like, what the hell is this? It was like the whole record was either like hard rock, like Van Halen. Okay, you had Cheap Trick on there, yeah. the Cars, God knows what else. And so when, every time I put on the Ramones song, I remember that we, with, with my little record player, I'd always be like, what the hell is this? Like, the beat is strange. The lyrics are weird. You know, and back then in Kansas City, I mean, it was, what, 78? You know, at least where I was living, like, you know, in the suburbs at the time, I mean, uh, everything was all about, we was still all about the 60s. Yeah, that's kind of like, you know, the sort of environment I grew up around. I was raised by my father, more or less back then, until he, until he remarried. And you know, there was Beatles and stuff like that and whatever. But like, in the late 70s, the main thing I remember are like, every party he had, I remember him always playing the, like, you know, the Doobie Brothers. I just remember like him having all these parties with like people like you know you, you know they, they all look cool they had bell bottoms on and 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 black vests you know male or female and curly hair and beards and mustaches so you know it was kind of like a hippie thing but really for for punk actually but the thing is like you know but there was all sorts of punk bands in the Midwest when I was growing up but like for punk really to hit hard like it did in Britain. It, it took until about the, the, the early 90s in the States. That was that about the time when you uh, came, went to Germany? The first the time 90s. I came to Germany ever, the first time ever, uh, was 1990. I did like a summer exchange program. Uh -huh. And did you like it that much that you decided to, to move, move there eventually? Or how did that come about? Yeah, like the, the first time I went, it was a city in the north called Oitin. It's near Kiel. And I was just like, oh, wow, this is fucking, you know, this is, this is awesome, you know? Yeah, I loved it. What did you like about it like, compared to the Midwest in the U.S.? I'd say that for now. I will say that for back then, it was definitely more liberal here. And the Midwest was the kind of place, you know, that when I had a mohawk, I was, it was in 86. I was a freshman in high school. And I'll just make a long story short. I had to grow my hair out again pretty quick. Uh-huh. Because it's like walking down the street was dangerous. Okay. You got attacked by people just for walking around with the moha. People would slam on their brakes. Uh-huh. You know, even one, one time my stepdad had to like, I was sitting in the car with him and my sister. We'd been in the movies. And, I, you know, I had a mohawk. I was sitting in the back seat. And these guys pulled up in a Jeep. And they were like, you know, college age. Uh-huh. Maybe like, you know, or even maybe even older, like mid-20s. And, uh... They pulled up next to us here because, you know, they, they also had to stop at the red light. And uh, they started yelling things at me like faggot. And my stepdad was this huge guy. He was kind of a little bit fat. But he was also very muscular, a big guy with a big beard. 
And he had to tell the guys, like, you know, shut your fucking mouths or get out of the car right now and kick your ass. And what did you do then? They shut up then? Yeah, and that's what was, uh, they were like, oh, this is what you talk in front of, in front of your kid. And he's like, they're my <laughs> fucking kids. I'll fucking say what I want. So fuck you. And so it was hilarious, really. Uh, then we got back to his house, you know, you know, where he lived with my mom. And he was like, Eric, I think it's really cool that you have a mohawk. And I think it's really cool that you want to do what you want to do. But you know what? It's not going to be easy. <laughs> Very sage advice. Eh? <laughs> so, you know, like I said, at that time I was like 14, 15, you know. And so I think it was interesting that coming to Germany like four years later, it seemed more normal, you know, at least up in the north to have like purple hair. Even in the village? Yeah. I thought Oitin yeah. was actually, it was 1990. I thought the town was very... You know, I saw women kissing women, and I was like, oh, yeah. you don't see those things in Kansas City normally. Like, you know, at least you didn't back then. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It's, I mean, there's huge differences in, in, in such a huge country as the U.S., right? You have the most liberal places in the world there, and then also some pretty backward. Yeah, Kansas, I, I, I would say that at the time when I was growing up, Kansas City was backwards. Mm-hmm. And even Lawrence was backwards too at the time, in a way. Even the, like the first week, mm. the first week of college, I was walking back with some friends from a party uh, to the dormitory that we were living. Did a little bit of history was like punk rockers and hippies and gays and lesbians and everything. It was you know the the the, the hip place to be. I thought, and we were walking back from this party. It was a terrible party. We were walking back. And these guys drove by in a sports car. And because my friends had like shaved heads and combat boots on, you know, you know, I looked pretty normal at the time. You know, they yelled faggot out the window. And um, I didn't do anything because I I'd learned growing up, growing up in Kansas City, if you're on foot and someone in a car yells at you, you just keep your mouth shut because <laughs> bad things can go down, you know. And people in Kansas City, but when I was growing up, people were out looking for trouble. And so anyway... My friends get yelled at, and I, I, I ignore it. And my friends give him the finger, and I was like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Well, shut up, Bauer. What do you know? And blah, 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 and whatever. You know. And then the car turns around. Another long story short, they all got out of the car and beat the crap out of all of us. Oh, fuck. I mean, so I didn't have to, to go. To, had to be huh? able to run, I guess. Well, I remember running, and I couldn't run fast enough. Mm -hmm. I was attacked by two of them. And the two guys were um, both. Each of them were twice the size of me. Wow! And then, and then you, at some point, you decided to move to Germany uh, indefinitely, right? Yes, I. I. Uh, what happened was, you know, studied German. Oh, okay. Uh, that was my major. When I graduated from the from the University of Kansas in Lawrence, I was given a travel grant to fly here, and then another scholarship for like one year. And so I did study here. But it was just kind of like, okay, we're paying you after your undergrad uh, studies to, 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 to go abroad, learn the language better, learn, learn the culture. And it, it would be great if you came back and, and taught at the university. But you never came back? No, I didn't. Ah, okay. So you just stayed and uh, decided to start a record label. Yeah, and then like, you know, it was, when was that, 94, 95 that year? And there was always still like good, really good concerts going on. But what I did notice in Germany, there was this really monolithic wave of electronic music, which I always liked. But it was like, it was too much here. It was all they had here. 
Yeah, back then it was it was very it was hard to find stuff outside of the mainstream. I remember for me it really started when <clears throat> when we uh, convinced our dad to to get cable TV and then we had MTV and MTV like in the early 90s there was no German MTV it was basically the US MTV and some some of it was uh, British MTV. Oh wow, cool. So so and I always used to watch MTV's US Top 20 because that's where the the good music in my opinion was because I wasn't too much into British music. And and then I think uh, I got to know bands like Weezer and Green Day which back then were pretty cool and nobody knew in Germany and it was so different, you know, uh, compared to today. So uh, nobody in my school, nobody in my town knew them and I was just like, oh, these bands are great. This, this is music, you know. Wow. I, I had started to play the bass and I could play these songs because they're just, you know, easy, simple punk music like Green Day. And it, it was always like there was a band that was famous in the US and it took, you know, two or three years for, for the thing to happen in, in Germany. Wow. Nowadays it's like at the same at the same time I guess, right? You know, when there's a new new wave of something, it's 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 simultaneously, you know, via social media and everything, people just the kids have this access to everything worldwide immediately and we didn't have that. So for me the door to this world was MTV. Wow. It's quite interesting because MTV was controversial, right? In the US it was quite hated by non-mainstream music listeners a lot, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We had, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was real young, MTV, like when I was, like, the first time I saw MTV was at a friend's house, like 81. Mm -hmm. And, wow. uh, you know, back then it was, they were just kind of, you know, throwing out, what you know, whatever videos they had. Uh, but by yeah, the time I, <laughs> I was in high school, it was, it was 90% of it was just fucking crap. But I think also think like too, like when I first moved to Tübingen, uh, there had been some sort of change in the culture because like, you know, when I, you know, when I went to 18, you know, I, all the, most of the people in the clique that, that I knew, and I still know quite a few of those people, actually, they were into like psychobilly and punk. And, and then I come to Tübingen and it's like, okay, there's still a little, there's a little bit of a punk edge, but like, you know, like what I, you know, most of the stuff I heard on like on the, like the radio when what people were listening to, I was like, what happened here? And, you know, there, there wasn't really much out there. I guess in the 80s, punk was pretty, pretty big in Germany or, you know, it was quite a strong subculture, you know, through, through the, the late 80s. And Chaos Tage, you know, they used to have this, you know, riots in, in uh, where was it, Kassel or somewhere, somewhere in a really boring place, Hannover, where, Hannover. where, the, where yeah. the punks would meet once a year and just, just break everything. Which is quite impressive, you know, thinking back today. And then and then I guess it must have been the, the change also when you look at Berlin as a as a as a city where where this they always had a, such a strong subculture and punk and goth and whatever. And then once the wall came down, it sort of went away. I think the good good bands there were I remember like growing up there there weren't really any bands, you know, good bands coming out of Berlin for a long time throughout the nineties and the zeros you know because my impression as a as 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 someone who played play, has played in bands was always you know the more interesting your the place where you live is the more you know opportunities you have to, to go out to to party to have fun the less inclined you'll be to to sit in a practice space and, and write your own music which is why we you know basically in rottenburg this small town 
we we had nothing else to do you know people you either went uh, played football or got drunk uh, or you know we, we didn't like all that so you know for us it was just you know what's to start a band and play music because there was nothing else to do and when you lived in berlin you had you know everything to do so you, there was no need to to play in a band to to write music so i always thought shitty places have better bands than than cool places well you know there's a few well there's a few things um One is that the first time I went, to, I came to Berlin, uh, 1990-91, um, but I just remember like Berlin back then, which is like a, just a totally alternative and bizarre place. If I look at the bars and restaurants and everything that I saw there, the place was really strange. You know, I remember this place, it was, it was uh, what was called um, Café Wirtschaftswunder. And the, we went in there and the guy was selling uh, uh, Negerkusse. And he was doing that on purpose, and like as a, he wasn't a racist. He was doing it, it was sort of like a provocation. And then they had this record on, it was some sort of comedy record from the 70s, and of these, you know, white teenage girls, and the way, from the States, uh -huh. and the way they were talking, you know, like, you know, like, are you my pimp daddy? Like, they were all kind of like using like ghetto slang. Uh -huh. And it was like the weirdest <laughs> The, I was like, well, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and Berlin was able to carry that into the 90s, yeah. in the early 2000s. But now it's still it, it, it's still kind of a strange place, you know? And I like that. I mean, It's edgy. Yeah, yeah, it definitely must have come from... Because, you know, right after the war, I don't think it was such an interesting place, really. And I guess the early 70s, when bands like Tonsteine Scherben started... And the whole squatting thing started. And then also, I mean, basically throughout the 60s, uh, you know, young men would move to Berlin so they wouldn't have to go to the military. Like sure, a, sure. a friend of my dad, he did that, you know, just because he didn't want to. And so all these kind of people that didn't want to, you know, go to the army went to Berlin. So naturally it was stuff like punk and all weird and alternative underground stuff was happening there and i think they're still kind of living off that image in a way even though now it's all it's all commercialized and you know it's all about looks and, and stuff like that but it still has this image you know with many people this is like the the rebel place though it isn't really anymore but. i mean it still has something yeah definitely yeah but i i just think it's become i think it became inundated with being hip yeah and that's kind of what killed it I mean, to me, it was always people moved there in order to participate, you know, or not to participate. Instead, they moved there to consume this, you know, alternative lifestyle, this underground, this being underground, which was already there. But they didn't really bring anything to the table, right? So I guess people, you know, the, really did, did the pioneer work in the, in the 80s. You know, they, they opened their clubs and everything and, and built up this club culture. And then... You know, my generation, many people I knew went to Berlin in the late 90s, early zeros. They just went there, you know, you know, I mean, many of them, I guess, to, to party. You know, there were many places where you could hang out. It was cheap, you know, but not really, you know, to, to build something up, to, to, to make something because everything was already there, you know. And, and that's, I felt like it died down a bit because of that, because there weren't enough people that had the, uh, you know, will to create something there. Sure. Like, well, well it's kind of like, um, um, I think you're right. It is kind of, it become a city where people just go there because it's like cool to be there for a while. 
But I think really the best time would have been there in the 70s with like David Bowie and Iggy Pop when they were living there. You know, that, that must have been a really, really strange time. For sure. And I guess probably like like uh, in, in many moments, it had a peak at some point and then people probably started getting into heroin, you know, and dying. And that's and then other people maybe started having kids and it just a generation probably calmed, you know, it was getting calmer. And then the, the new kids started with a techno thing with Love Parade and everything. And then techno was the big thing. And there wasn't that much punk in Berlin anymore in the 90s, I guess. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the, the, well, the weird thing was, you know, when I was in, in, in eighth grade, okay, I was, we were only 12 or 13. And the only thing we really had to do was go to the shopping mall. And during the middle of that first week, I met this guy named Noah. And uh, Noah was like, hey, do you want to spend the night at my, my place on Friday? And I'll take you to these record stores around the corner. You know, I knew all the, like, the, like the, you know, like, like Elvis Costello and all the stuff that was played on the radio. Uh, but like he took me to these record stores and I was just like, I couldn't believe like all these weird records and, you know, all these like kind of older hippies working in there. And mm -hmm. I was like, I have a question. They're like, go ahead. What do you want to ask? And I said, do you have the sex pistols? <laughs> and they're like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, the sex pistols, <laughs> you know, it's like, we, you know, there, there was like a section, there was like a sign, the sex pistols. They did have the Ramones, uh, of course, but, but of course, back then in like '84, uh, that was all like 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 that, that was like a real metal time. I, I find it so interesting that in the U.S. is more than here, I guess, how much all of rock music almost that exists there today goes back to to punk, basically. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, the British punk explosion had a strong influence on. On American punk and hardcore, but then you know, grunge was like basically they were all trying to sound like Black Flag when they slowed down, right? You know, when they did like My War, and and then and that was grunge basically. And then many of the you know big rock acts today, it all goes back to punk music basically, which is really impressive. I think it's more than in other countries. It seems seems to have left you know a, a big impression on on musicians in general. You know, especially American hardcore, I guess, which is much sure. rougher than, you know, less melodic. Well, I do think that the reason you have more bands in the States, in places like Britain or Australia, rock and roll is from the U.S. It is an, an English, it, it's an English spoken genre of music, you know, and so it's kind of, a, it's, it's, it makes sense that it's actually still very present in the U.S. or the U.K. or elsewhere. I mean, the UK is crazy. I remember I toured there with the Masons one time, just for like one week. It was like a little, like about one week in the UK. And no one on God's earth back then, or in the UK, I mean, knew who the Masons were. But every rest stop we went to, to you know, to, to use the restroom or to get a bite to eat, we'd walk out. And also these kids would flock to us. We'd be like, hey, could you give me your autograph? <laughs> And it was just like, wow, there's like a really drive here for like a like mm -hmm. a like, like a like a a pop culture. Even okay. you don't even call it like a pop culture, yeah. you know. And it's just you know because the pop culture in general is from the U.S. You know, is is from the U.K. Maybe it's an export more than you know a domestic thing. I don't know. 
I always found it really hard to when I was in in Tidal, we we you know we toured a lot you know in Spain and France and Germany of course but it was always really hard we never made it you know to 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 get a tour you know on foot in in Britain in the UK I don't know how how it went for you when you went with the Masons if it was okay uh, I uh, I wouldn't recommend unless you're on some mid mid level of success, I would not recommend the UK to tour. Mm, it's not easy. Yeah? No, you're you have no food. There was like a, the whole time we were there for like nine days. I think mm-hmm. there was one club that like um, fed us food, that gave us beer, and then like, oh yeah, we know a local band here that'll take you back to their place. Really, you know, I mean, in, in the US, mm-hmm. it's the same way, you know. That's strange, huh? Because Germany Germans are not, you know, really known for their hospitality, but for bands it's the best place, I guess, one of the best places for touring. We'd always get food, you know. Bands from the US uh and elsewhere that they love touring. They love touring like which is Germany, Austria, Switzerland, uh, uh, uh the Netherlands as well, Spain. What kind of sucked was France. That was always really difficult. It had something to do with the fact that if you weren't part of their like uh, musicians' union, okay. then it was very difficult for you to find a gig. But oh. on the other hand, though, the last time that well, the, the very last Masons tour was two thousand ten, and we played in quite a few gigs in in France, and they were great. It wasn't like it was ever bad there. It was just like hard. Uh-huh. Yeah, you we, know, we played there a bunch. It was it was. But I always remember in France, it was always there was always a few kids and dogs. You know, <laughs> it was always wow. this thing when, when you know, oh, there's a, there's a concert, let's go. Uh, what do we do with the kids? Oh, we just bring them and the dog, of course. You know, it was cool. They were just, you know, whatever, you know, whatever band, let's just go and, and, and have a good time. I mean, that was for us. What, yeah, what, I mean, you know, like I, I think it. probably too, another problem was like, like, like in the early days of touring, the first tour that I that I did that I was a part of, was the Hefner it was it was it was 1999 mm-hmm. the Hefner and then on the weekends it was also Madison Trio and uh the Vibrosonics from Tubingen and it was sort of like uh you know you know you had these these uh, high expectations mm-hmm. here we are we're you know we're not not from from here or you know this band is touring and people are just going to show up mm-hmm. And like sometimes it was that way. Sometimes it was a great gig and a lot of people. Then other times, you know, I mean, I remember that that, that tour in 1999 with the Hefners, there was like at least four or five days where where most of the venues were empty. Yeah, that happened to us too. You know, when you had to like Tuesdays or something like that and it was really hard yeah, like, at it, some point. And then you wonder, you know, what's is it is it worth it? <laughs> Well, you get kind of discouraged, you yeah. know, like at first, but then, like, then after a while, you're kind of like, well, you know, it's just part of the deal, you know. I mean, the, the people haven't heard of your band. Yeah. How are they going to know, if, you know, if they should come or not? And you yeah. know, and then also, uh, you know, they want, you know, they have to pay money, and like, you know, a lot of people, the way they think is, you know, who wants to pay money for a band you don't know? Mm. And it's just you know a simple you know economic thing, and then you know when you then you go back with the, you know the places like the states, and it's the same way. People are kind of like, okay, it's a Tuesday night. I'm not you know I'm not going to go out. 
Yeah, it's weird. I think it ha it has become more of a you know extreme. Like the, for for unknown bands today, I think it's really hard. And you know, for the for the better known bands, they can make much more money. The you know tickets are more expensive, and it will sell out quicker than ever before. I mean, I remember I my first concert was. Um, Green Day too, in '96 oh, wow, cool. in the Schleierhalle. So that was when they oh, wow, had just cool. become really famous, right? In like '94, '95, when they had Dookie and were like world famous. They were really big, and the concert was the ticket was 26 mark, 13 euros, you know, in Schleierhalle. Now it would be like wow. 50, 60, I don't know, maybe more. So so it's it's changed quite a lot, and and back then, yeah. For us, it was always cool to play in places where, you know, like in villages or, or you know, places that are not so, not so frequented by by cool bands, because then you had a better chance of people coming out just because there's a concert. You know, like our first tour with Tidal was in outside of Germany. Was we went to Croatia, which was really cool in uh, 2000 or 2001, was it? I think. So it was just a few years after the war had ended down there and. We played in one town, Sisak, you know, that was the first concert of a foreign band after the Civil War. And and there were all these kids, we played in a school gym or something like that. And there was no no stage or light show, so they just switched on the light and switched on the light on and off. There was one guy who did that all the time. <laughs> There's just the hall lights on and off, on and off, on and off. And they went totally crazy, you know, they had never seen anything like that it was just like wow there's a band a foreign band let's let's all go there and you know go crazy and th these these things were really cool i always liked that so i always also it was cool always to play in eastern germany you know in the early 2000s i don't know if you had the same experience with the bands that you were on tour with people seem to be more grateful when bands came around the people there are actually more open to, to like uh, a, a different kinds of music. I mean, you have the thing in East Germany. I think it's, it's still sort of the same. But you had like in certain areas, you had like this, of course, this like neo-Nazi problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but then on the other hand, you had this like beautiful, open-minded. You know, I mean, I thought a lot of the people that were more into the kind of music that people from the U.S. would be into. That even West Germans, you know, that that was a, a great experience, and and yeah, I agree. I thought when I toured with bands, I thought some of the best places were small towns, because mm. you know, not much happens there, and you know, you know, I, it, as, as much as I love Berlin, you know, everyone there has, you know, there's a, there's an attitude, yeah. You know, like, oh, we've seen this, we've, we've been through this. Yeah, people would never, it would be really hard to get, you know, a good good uh, audience response in Berlin, right? People moving, that almost never happened because they have concerts every, still today, you know, every day you can go to an amazing concert. So why should you, you mm. know, you, you know, why should you dance or anything like that? Well, yeah, it's like, well, yeah, the people, they're, they're kind of like, uh, uh, what's the word, they're, uh, they're inundated, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. It was it was hard with bands in Berlin, and then even like you know the even harder thing was even getting a gig in Hamburg, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. That was the hardest for us too. Hamburg was. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Maybe also because it was so saturated with bands and. Concerts. And it was just it was it was. I mean, I think of all the tours I did, I think I did eighteen tours. Hamburg was in there probably maybe like four or five times. With title, we we also had a few. You know, we we. 
played th for many years in Germany in many places and we said at one point you know we have to play in Hamburg and so we just went there with the with the van we couldn't get a show so we just said we'll just go there and see what happens and nothing happened wow. of course and then we, we 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 thought we'd just you know find a place to play and a place to sleep and it, it didn't work so we were five or six in the van and we said oh, what are we going to do now and then we just you know we were like 20 years old something like that so we just um, decided we because in the van only two or three could sleep so we just chatted up people on the Reeperbahn or in, in St. Pauli, just people on the street and said, you know, we're a touring band. We have a day off. Uh, we don't have a place to stay. Can we sleep at your place? And, you know, finally uh, a girl said, yeah, you know, can stay in my place. So three of us, I think. Wow, that's went. cool, though. <laughs> it was very cool. That was amazing. Yeah. That's cool because like most people will be like, stay away, you know? Exactly. <laughs> most people, will, you know, I think in Hamburg people are very, you know, friendly in a way. Um, also a bit cool, maybe. Sure, but I, I think Hamburg is it, it is a very friendly and open place. Yeah. You know, if you want to meet a stranger in Germany, I think I think it's a place to go to. You yeah. know. So, so I was going to ask you. So you had um, when you came to Tübingen in the '90s. At some point, you started the record label. Um, was that your plan? Uh, you know, to just do that and try to make a living by this record label. I, you know, I came here. I did the scholarship here, and. Uh, Then I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to stay in, in, in here longer mm. and see if I really like it. And then I signed up at the university to do my master's. And I, and I did I, I did one semester of, of my master's. But I was sitting there in the class one day and I kind of thought, like, yeah, this is stuff like Schiller, Goethe, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's all beautiful literature. But I was sitting there like, is this is how I'm going to spend the next two or three years of my life? You know, and so then... You know, so at the time I was, I was I was working in a bar here, and then then I got a job at the at the at, at Rimpo, the, the record store. Uh -huh. wow. that's, cool. I, that, that, that's kind of what inspired me. Mm -hmm. Rimpo's attitude that inspired me, and then also because they also had they had their own record label. Working for them was really what 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 brought me into you know you know, and then also like and also before I came here, I, I started getting into like Crypt Records. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that was my label, you know, I thought mm -hmm. like, you know, these guys are going to save it, you know, or they're, they're going to, this record label is going to save rock and roll, you know. It's funny because they're in Germany as well, right? They were, they, they were. Um, they still have a store in Germany. Yeah. They moved the label back to the, back to the States right. around 2000 or something, uh, maybe even before that. Uh, but like, you know, but Crypt Records to me was like, I was like, this is the answer mm -hmm. to, to all my problems. <laughs> okay, cool. But actually what really saved rock and roll in Europe was Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. The whole you know, Schweinerock, Turbo Negro and that kind of thing, you mean? Er everything, mm -hmm. everything from Scandinavia, you know? I mean, they really have, I mean, I don't know what, what Norway is like, but I, I've been to Sweden a couple of times. And uh, when you're in in Sweden, in Stockholm, it's kind of like, okay, there's really nothing going on. Mm. You know, like, I mean, the, the people didn't seem that interested in, in rock and roll. And, and, you know, and they really do use it as an export, you mm. know. The, 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 the government pumps money into the whole thing. They always, I don't know, they, they um, I always felt the Swedish bands especially, because, you know, most of the bands were from Sweden or are. Uh, when when we talk about the Scandinavian bands, I always felt they had you know this more 
pop sensibility maybe not even necessarily you know musically that they were poppy but um they somehow managed to appeal to a lot of people you know even playing the same kind of music as some american bands for example would like for us because i got into hardcore you know in the late 90s so the biggest band maybe at that time was refused right mm -hmm. and um they weren't known outside of the hardcore scene at all But in the hardcore scene, it was like the biggest thing. And we actually got to play with them also once, just after their the Shape of Punk to Come album had come out in 98. So it must have been 98 or 99 that we played with them in a small club in Metzingen, club thing. And they, I don't know what, what it was, but they somehow managed to speak to a lot of people. And mm -hmm. a few years after, it became mainstream as well, right? So none of the other hardcore bands managed that, you know, or... or Probably most of them didn't want to, but also they couldn't. And, um, you know, same thing, I think, went for Turbo Negro, Helicopters, you know, Backyard Babies, of course. These bands had just had this mass appeal somehow inbred. I don't know, maybe that's a Swedish thing. Scandinavian well, thing. I think that, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't just like Turbo Negro or Helicopters. It, it was bands like, uh, like The Refused, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I... The, the, the Refuse was, was a band I, I, I really I couldn't really warm up to them but I know what they did for the scene and you know they, they changed hardcore you know I mean, they, they made hardcore really hip I mean this, this record you know The Shape of Punk to Come back then it was like for everybody it was just I remember this concert just nobody was like yeah cool Refuse is playing but you know this new record is kind of weird so nobody was really wow this is so great But now, you know, 22 years later, when I listen to it, I'm like, this sounds like, you know, tomorrow's music, which is, I think, quite impressive. I don't have this feeling with most other records. Sure. But what saved, you know, rock and roll when it comes to like the leather jacket and, the, you know, the studded waistband. Yeah. That was like helicopters and turbo negro. Yeah. They, they, they actually did save it. But they also brought it to every German village and every village had their own. Turbo Jugend at some at some point. For me personally, I, I thought I thought it was a bit much, but you know it was kind of a you know selfish position probably I had. But that's like I said earlier, you know, it was this feeling that you know you you knew some music that not everybody else knew, and then it kind of changed, you know, maybe with this Swedish thing that all of a sudden everybody was into Turbo Negro and they had their Turbo Jugend jackets and. You know, their own sure. sections. And to me, it was like, you know, I'm out of this now, you know. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, I'm not sure how old you were at that point exactly, but at some point in your life, you're like, okay, I, you know, I like the music, but I've had enough of this shit, yeah. you know. It's like, I mean, uh, I quit giving a shit about my look. Well, it's hard to say, like probably like early 20s. Mm. You know, after a while, you're like, okay, look, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I had a mohawk. You know, uh, I did the goth thing. I did the electro, you know, the, it wasn't really electronic music at the time, but like, it was sort of like, you know, wavy kind of stuff, you yeah. know? And so, yeah, like after a while, you're kind of like, you know, you sort of establish your look and you're kind of like, okay, I really don't want to change that much anymore. I found my identity. You know, with me, the identity thing was, okay, uh, your hair has fallen out. And if you grow hair on your head, you look like an idiot. <laughs> The only person that liked the hair on my head was my grandma, my grandmother, my mom's side. She's like, oh, Eric, you look like Phil Collins. If you would keep <laughs> looking that way, 
well, you could get all the all the girls, and I was just kind of like, okay, grandma, this is a little bit too much, you know. It's, you know, it's like you know, it's like you don't take advice from your grandmother. Wow. Phil Collins, I mean, he's a he's a he was a big star. I remember I had this this theory I had because every time you went <clears throat> to a record store or a flea market where there were records, there was always face value by Phil Collins looking at you. You you know this cover where he's like his, sure. his bald head staring at you, and and he was always there, and I was like. I always felt being watched by Phil Collins, you know? So I had this theory that he was like, you know, secretly dominating the world, Phil Collins, by placing his records everywhere and, you know, you know, making sure we we always aware of his face. Yeah, actually, I think I, I remember reading a number of years ago that he actually regrets his success because wow. actually because like he became so successful that, 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 that people started hating him. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, you know, I think I overdid it. You know, it's interesting to have this kind of you know, uh, realization later on. But I could see why you weren't into the whole Turbo Yugen thing. That, that I mean, I, I I thought that was really funny, yeah, and and entertaining. But I also felt like to God at the time when it started getting really big. I mean, I was already over thirty. Yeah, you know, I kind of thought like, what am I going to do? Like, <laughs> show up at some party somewhere in a village. Near here with my Turbo Yugen jacket, be like, "Hey guys, what's up?" You know, I mean, kind of. My, I've already, you know, I mean, gotta be like, like, who's this old fart? You know? Yeah, they'd be like, "Oh, you discovered Turbo Negro as well? Yeah, cool. We just found out about them." Yeah, I don't know. I just hate it for the people who were like, seemed to me to be like the people, you know, I couldn't really get along with, you know, in in a few years before. You know, when you had to, basically, when I was in fifth grade, it was like you were either New Kids on the Block or you were Guns N' Roses, you know, and maybe wow. Ro Roxette somewhere in between. Roxette was also, there was, that was the, kind of the fractions. And I didn't really like any of them. You know, Guns N' Roses, one or two songs I thought were okay. But I was really, you know, waiting for something to happen. And then when that happened... It was like, yeah, now I have my thing. And then the same guys, the same Roxette people, you know, were like, oh, hey, now we're like Turbo Jugend, Turbo Negro. So cool, huh? And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I, I knew people like that in high school, too. I mean, I knew people like, uh, I mean, I, I'm friends with them now. Yeah. I've seen him a few times in Kansas City, and I really like him. He, he really is like a lovable guy. But back in high school, he was, he was an asshole. You know, and he would like, he would uh, give me shit and other people because we were in the punk or, you know, the people in our clique were gay or lesbian. You know, I mean, of course, back then in the 80s at a Catholic high school, of course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't come out of the closet so quickly, mm. you know. But like he was a real, he was, a, he was kind of a homophobic dick, you know, and he was like your typical, what we would call like a jock. And now he's a gay punk or what? No, but like he, <laughs> that would the, be no, a nice the, twist to the story. <laughs> no, but he would be like, we went to this place in Kansas City. I remember Kansas City's downtown was a ghost town for many years. People would go there to work, and then they, you know, and they, uh, they would leave. And there was no apartments down there, so there was all these lofts down there that were made out of cement and like. Young people would move in and pay very little rent, and they would, you know, put on concerts. And then we would see him there. He would like be shitty to us, and, and then we'd see him on the weekend, like hanging out at like like a punk show. And this friend of mine, this 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 woman I know, would always would always be like, 
I beat punks up at de- by day and dance with them at night. <laughs> I mean, it was. It, I understand really the the you know the feeling that you had back then because it was. It used to be worth something that you had your little subculture thing that you had discovered on your own, you know, without any you know posts in social media. You just stumbled upon it, and then when other people came, you know, when it was easier to access, it, you felt like. You know, this used to be my thing. And uh, yeah, I just sometimes wonder how it is, because today is totally not existent anymore, this kind of thing, right? You don't discover anything anymore. It's just everything's there and everybody knows everything, you know, everybody and their grandmother. <laughs> I wonder how it is for kids, you know, to, to, to define yourself, to, you know, define what you're not. It must be hard. Well, I think the main thing is that, well, there are things out there to discover, There's something different between, you know, like going to a library and picking up a book as to where it's like, you know, finding that on the Internet. And the same is for music. It's like if, if you just do that with the with the, with the click on your computer, like there's no effort involved. Uh. I mean, you know, and the thing is, the reason I found out about newer bands was I would go to these weird record stores in Kansas City and these older people uh, that, that worked there and hung out there. Uh, they were all really nice, I and mean, they were all really okay. They did give us alcohol, you know. <laughs> uh, although we were under 21, you know, we were 16, 17, whatever. But they were really they weren't abusive people, yeah. you know. They were really nice people. They also put you on, and they're like, "Oh, music. you know, Eric, if you like this, I think uh-huh. you ought to check out this record." And the record stores were weird. Uh-huh. This one place in Kansas City, they had like a like a TV built into the like the concrete wall. Yeah. And they would show like night and day when you went there, whether they had like an art opening, like a vernissage or just regular daily things. They would show like like gay pornographic movies. Mm-hmm. Are you sure they didn't want to, you know, you know, they, no, they didn't get you, I, I get you there they, for a reason? No, 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 no they, they weren't. They weren't. I didn't get that vibe from yeah. them. Okay. Uh, and open. if so, I mean, you know, I mean. Uh, you got some good music out of it okay. at least. <laughs> Well, I just remember walking in this this one place, and there was this movie from uh, John Waters. You know him, the Pink Flamingos. There yeah. was this guy that could like whistle out of his mm-hmm. asshole, yeah. and it was like on the screen when I walked in, and I was just like, "What the hell is this?" And the guy was like, "It's Pink Flamingos. You never seen the movie, you know?" And it's like, yeah. I mean, it was it's art, more, yeah. No, it was it was it was like arts. It was artistic stuff. Yeah. Well, I remember one time I went to that record store. And my my mom, my my stepmom, and my sister, she had to take her to like a like a, like a doctor's appointment, and she's like, "I'll drop you and your friend off, and you guys go in there and look at records. You know, if you want to buy something, here's five dollars. We'll come back in like an hour." And the guy at the record store was smoking marijuana, and so we get back into the car. And then my friend had to make the point of mentioning that he was smoking pot. Okay. And my stepmother was like, you know, at the time she was like a kind of a psychologist, you know, uh-huh. like like a counselor. And she was like, why did I hear about pot? And I was like, no, what my friend is talking about is like, you know, like you put your plant in the pot. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> How kids think they can and, fool their parents, right? <laughs> and my stepmom was like, she's like, Eric, I'm not stupid. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we were like 14. Uh, And we didn't smoke it with him, but he was in there behind the counter smoking smoking pot, you know? 
and like trying to get us into the like like industrial music. And my stepmom was like, "Well, look, Eric, tell me the truth." He was like, "It's okay if he was smoking pot. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to call the police. I just want to know what happens when you guys at these or, or the, at these record stores. No. That's all I want to know." And so, like, so like, we're both were like, "Yeah, the guy was smoking pot." And I thought it was pretty cool of my stepmother because, like, she she was like, "Look, just just tell me the truth." I'm not going to, you're not going to get in trouble. He's not going to get in trouble because, you know, that she knew that we really loved that record uh, store. I guess she'd probably, you know, she'd probably seen the 60s happen and all that. So, you know, maybe she wasn't too, um, you know, conservative on these, on these things. Sort of. There was a couple of times when I was like in ninth grade where I was hanging out with some friends and the parents would call my, my, my parents. Like, we think that our son is smoking marijuana and so if i got home they're like eric come into our room mm-hmm. and they put a flashlight in my eyes <laughs> to see if yeah so they were concerned about it uh, you know uh, but it was fun i loved it i, I loved hanging out at those record stores it was like you could go in there and it was dark mm-hmm. and weird you know there was like weird posters on the wall the yeah. people were weird they were hanging out there you're not weird but like you know different yeah. you know they were They were true artists, you know. You walk in there, and then then you come outside, and then and then the sunlight blinds you, yeah. you know. Not so many You're of like, these Whoa. places around Whoa. anymore, I think today. Huh? Like the bars, are always they used to be these dark and dirty bars that you would never, you know, dare to see by the light of when when the light gets switched on. I think there's almost none of those left. Yeah, it's all yeah. chic, chic now. So so anyway, great great uh, you know great stories there. So what are you what are you uh, like up to now right now at the moment? What are you doing? Tubing and just uh, I'm working at an undisclosed location and doing shows there. Uh, but like everything that I know and I knew uh, because of this Corona thing, it's it's all become it's it's all become void you know yeah yeah we'll see how that you know what what can come back and what not i, I will say this that the started to end the conversation is that um the last time of year less go on like four or five years i haven't really been so happy with tubing and okay i think tubing has become really kind of snobby and chick really uh-huh but i will say this since the whole corona thing happened I'm very happy to be here. That was my conversation with Eric the Red. And uh, yeah, check out his uh, record label, Middle Class Big Records. And especially check out The Blondes. I think it's some of the best music that he's put out. So thanks for listening. Take care. Every song is a memory.